Wisconsin Southern Conference of AA held at Westport, right outside of Madison, Wisconsin, at St. Mary's of the Lake Parish. The meeting was held on May 18, 1963. It was an all-day affair, and the main speaker for the conference was a gentleman by the name of Dick W. from Hollywood. Drink it. 
Now, this is a guy and a gal who had never met before. They'd just gotten on the plane. <laughs> By the time they got through with the bottle, they were back, 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 back. Now, this is quite a commentary on human relations today. You have to have a drink to communicate. How many parties have I walked into or you walked into? They open the door and they say, hiya, Dick. Here's a drink or hiya, Dick. What do you have? Can't get comfortable without a drink. I ain't against it for nobody but me. 24 hours a day, I don't take a drink. 24 hours a day, I don't have to take a drink. Now, there was a time. That's part of my story. I had an idea when I couldn't get a job that first year and a half of writing up this story. So I did. I submitted it, and they laughed me right out of the studio. Can't happen. I said, can happen. It happened. I did it. You did it? That's right. They said, Dick, the public wouldn't believe it. I said, this is the story of an alcoholic. I can't get it put on the screen. I don't want to now. This is when I was new. I think every new AA wants to write a book or write a story. I know I did. Most of the people that I met would like to do that. What do I know about alcoholism? Well, this reminds me of a, a little story that I heard when I came into AA, and I've always liked. It's about a, a young boy who got his first, very first job working in a drugstore. In the middle of the second day, the druggist said, Boy, you take over. I'm going to be gone for a few hours. He said, Yes, sir. After about an hour, the phone rang. The kid picked it up, and he said, Hello. The voice said, Do you know if you have any pentaerythrite, tricepram nitrite, in an aqueous solution? kid thought a minute, he said, Mr., when I said hello, I told you all I know. <laughs> well, that's, the reason that story struck me with such impact is because that's exactly where I was. Now a little time has gone by, very little time. But I feel that I have learned a little bit. Not about alcoholism. I just don't drink. But about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It, it took me 44 and a half years to begin to learn to live. And one of my first meetings that I went to, I heard a fellow say, Welcome to This Is Your Life. Did you eat? And it was true. For eight months before I came into AA, I continued to drink. I made no pretense about stopping. I went to a meeting. I was smashed, and I listened. I went home, still smashed, drank some more on the way home. I got in the door, and my wife said, I leaned on the door jam, and I said, My name is Dick. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Now, alcoholics drink, so I continued to drink. I made no pretense of stopping for eight months. 
meetings, I would fortify myself, and I would go to meetings, and I would listen to all this schmear, and it would be all over, and I'd go up to someone after the meeting, I'd say, yeah, this is all very good and well, but how do I stop drinking? Blind as a bat. I needed it, but I didn't want it. I was thinking also, on the way over here, about, oh, almost four years ago, I was on a plane going down to Florida to make four of the last U.S. Border Patrol shows that we made. And I had my usual two-fifth plus what the stewardess gave me. And I pulled a Dido, for which National Airlines is being sued for a quarter of a million, my ex-boss for a quarter of a million, and me for a quarter of a million. Man, we go when we go. <laughs> Guys, how can you do that? It's simple. Become a practicing alcoholic. And do darn near most anything. I wish I was half as brilliant sober as I was drunk. I have a fabulous imagination, but what happened to it? It got sober. <laughs> oh, I do want to tell all of you people who know Walter, okay, that he is okay. He's uh, back at meetings out on the coast now, and I hear that he has been going out and doing some pitching, so the heart attack was minor. He took real good care of himself, and he's back on the circuit again. I know many of you people did ask me, so I thought I would, I would broadcast it. As far as my own story is concerned, and if there are any newcomers, that reminds me, a lot of the meetings that I go to, they say, is there anyone here for their first, second, or third meeting? Well, I was pretty new, and I got into a, an old, old group, an old sobriety group one night, and the guy said, is there anybody here for their first, second, or third year? <laughs> you can't beat AA. About the time that you think you've gotten a little seniority and a little tenure, somebody pulls the rug out from under you.
I gave him to Alcoholics Anonymous. The psychiatrist told me that I was a chronic alcoholic. I didn't want to go back to him. I thought I was just a bum. I didn't know anything about, really know anything about alcoholism. Yeah, you were, and you were, and you were. But he told me I was. I didn't like that character. I was figuring out ways out of not paying that last 25 bucks. Chronic alcoholic. I would be all right if you people just didn't do those things. This is insanity. This is complete insanity. Now I can now I can understand. It took 44 and a half years to get that sick. But I didn't think I was sick. Go on 12 step calls. You talk to these people. You think you're getting through. Just about that time they look at you and they say, Brother, you better go someplace and get help. You're sick. I don't have to be that sick anymore. I'm one step. I'm one drink away from a drunk. And I know it. I'm always aware of it. People say, well, you, you people out in Hollywood, you have more time, more glamour, there's more this, there's more that. Fooey. You can drink anywhere. I hear that incidence of alcoholism is as highest among truck drivers. I hear it is highest among oil well people. I hear it's highest among secretaries. Whatever particular job you happen to do, that's where the highest incidence of alcoholism is. Hollywood or New York or Madison or any place else doesn't have any edge on it. I hear of a meeting down in Chicago that has about four or five hundred policemen in it. I hear of other meetings that have two or three hundred members of the clergy. Man, that clergy must be murdered. Alcoholism is a, has an obsession of the mind and an allergy of the body and a spiritual disease of the soul. That hit me right between the eyes when I heard it. And I attempted to try to find out what I could do about that particular thing. They told me this was a spiritual program. And something snapped up in my mind. As soon as they would talk about spiritual or religion or this or that, or I'd see a collar turned around backwards, I would I would clam right up. I came from a very sordid background. Both of my grandfathers were ministers. And I went to a Bible school. I went over the wall. I haven't checked back to see how many of my colleagues are in the club or needed, or this thing, <laughs> that's what they call a, a guy says, do you still belong to that thing? <laughs> but I know that I had a very deep spiritual sickness of the soul. I can talk about it now. I recognized it when they talked about it, but I couldn't discuss it. Now I can talk about it. You know, God gives you what you need, not what you want. 
call them on the West Coast of Haiti. You call them pigeons out here. I understand. Well, they're babies. Uh, you like that, babies? <laughs> they are babies. We are babies. Swaddling claws. A young man came to a meeting one night. He looked curious. He came to the same meeting the next, the following Monday. This was one particular meeting that I made every week. He came and he sat, and this night he was purple. There was one of those go around the room, there were about 40 guys in it. I happened to be leading that one. I got around to this fellow, and he began to snort and bellow. And it turns out that he is a member of the clergy. And he had brought a priest who had a small, slight heart attack to this meeting because so the priest couldn't drive, and now he finds out that he's an alcoholic. <laughs> so he asked me if I would be his sponsor. I'm a separated brethren, otherwise known as a dirty Protestant.
you know, it doesn't bother me anymore. It used to bother me, and I'd go around hiding it. Let anybody see. I had occasion a couple of months ago to take a call from the central office down in Los Angeles about going up and speaking to a Baptist group. And the minister up there wanted to start a group for alcoholics, to deal with alcoholics. And they wanted to find out about alcoholism. Well, I, I thought that this was a, a different type thing than just an ordinary AA pitch. So I got all the books and everything, and I made notes. I made four and a half pages of notes, and I played it onto a tape recorder, and I listened to it so that I could give a lecture. Well, I got there. I got through about one page of the notes. The 50 minutes were up. I didn't talk anything about the notes here too much. I gave them a little background on Alcoholics Anonymous. But I more or less told my own story. And these people just sat. And I thought, man, am I laying a bomb tonight. I ain't getting through to nobody. So after it was over, one of the ladies in my congregation came up and she said, that's a horrible story. <laughs> that's right. How can you stand up there and say those things? I said, it's easy because I don't do them anymore. So I left the notes with the minister. He hasn't contacted me, so I guess he didn't get in any trouble with him. I don't know. Some of them were self-explanatory. But uh, I did leave with him the fact that as noisy, which I refer to them, non-alcoholic, if they work with a practicing alcoholic, just about the time they feel like they're making some headway with him, he's beginning to clear up. There's a loud banging on their front door about 2 o'clock some morning, and some guy comes in and beats them around the head for lousing up their lives. Keep an open mind. <laughs> because we are like this. I don't know today everything that has happened to me since I came into the program. My wife reminds me that a few years ago I used to do so-and-so and such-and-such, and I don't do it anymore. Well, I hadn't even thought about it. The way that I thought, the things that I did, by and large, I don't do them anymore. Now, uh, one fellow that I met long time on the program, he said, now look, he said, when you come into AA, change all of your old ways of doing things. He said, if you drive down Chandler Boulevard and turn right on Fulton, change it. Drive down Burbank and turn left on Woodman to get to your job. I said, man, this guy's out of his mind. This is the way he did it. What are we now? 500,000 strong, there are 500,000 ways to work the program. I used to argue with people. This after I thought, I began, I was beginning to learn something. I'd get into conversations with guys down at the clubhouse. And I'd argue with them. Brought this and that and the other. Argue, argue. And there was one little guy, about three weeks old, he was sitting there just, just looking at me. After this big steam thing was all over, out of the mouth of this baby came the truth. This 
brought me up short. He says, what are you arguing with it for? He said, it saved your life. Out of the mouths of babes. That reminds me, when I first came in, and again, I was about 60 days old. That was a long time, 60 days. I went to a meeting over in Brentwood. Sitting on my left was a tall, statuette, real good-looking gal with long, dark hair. Very attractive, and I kept looking at her. Didn't lose everything, you know. <laughs> so when the coffee break came, we just stood up to stretch. I said, good evening. Good evening. Which kind of unnerved me a little bit. And I said, hasn't it been a, a lovely day? He said, I have no opinions on outside issues. <laughs> she was only a week old. That's what she heard. She wasn't taking any chances. <laughs> when I was still drinking, I went to meetings and I heard Chuck Chamberlain speak. And I'm sitting down there, and I'm suffering, and I'm squirting blood out of both eyes. And this guy leans over the podium, and he said, it's the good life. And I said, man, that guy's an idiot. <laughs> the good life. Well, it is the good life. I don't hurt. I think and think, sure. Every once in a while. Do I love everybody? Ooh, not all the time. If it's love, I'd like to say love and punch them up in the nose. But you have to love him, but you don't have to like him. That let me off the hook. I don't go to jail anymore. I go there now to talk or to try to help somebody. But I can get out. See, I wasn't the type of alcoholic... Went to hospitals, sanitariums, hospitals, sanitariums. Mine was like playing Monopoly. I didn't pass go. I didn't collect two hundred dollars. I went straight to jail. <laughs> now, the many times that I should have been in jail, many times that I should have gone to the penitentiary, I didn't go. Some of the screwball dados that I pulled. There's a walnut tree out in my front yard. Big, beautiful thing. My wife knew that I was drinking too much, but she didn't... This alcoholism bit hadn't struck her yet. I was hiding. I'd have a few drinks in the house, rattle glass, but she would not. Saunter out the back door, around the side of the house, up in the walnut tree, and I had a jug up there. <laughs> Forty-four and a half year old age sitting up on a walnut tree.
Jesus was sitting across the room from me one night, about 20 feet away, and I was twirling that 357 Magnum on my finger that I used in the Border Patrol series. It was loaded. I always kept the guns loaded. Why do you have guns if you don't keep them loaded? And from the hip, I twirled this thing, and why? I pulled off a shot and missed him three inches. From the hip. Why? God didn't mean for me to kill anyone. He didn't mean for me to kill myself. Of this, I am convinced. There's no other answer. That is the man who gave me my copy of the big book. After I pulled the shot off alongside his head. He hasn't been back to my house. He has called. He wishes me well. The book that he gave me was a 1944 issue, printing, and he had given it to another actor in New York about that period because the fellow was an alcoholic. The guy tried the program. It didn't work for him. He went back to drinking and he died. So he kept that book, and when I pulled that shot off alongside his head, he figured something was the matter. So he, he gave me the book. I have not found it necessary to return it to him. As yet, this book has a history behind it now. And I would like to keep the status quo, just as it is. To try to tell you, any of you, what the program has meant to me, would take a better man than I am to do it. It has taught me a constant contact with a power greater than myself, which I had when I was a child. When I was a kid, there was a power. There, there was light and beauty and sweet and trees and bees and all that sort of thing. And everything was good. Somewhere along the line, it was turned off. I turned it off. But since coming back into the program, or coming into the program, I have regained it. It hasn't been done overnight. There was no great flash and brilliance and skyrockets going up. When I lie down at night in my bed, I say the Lord's Prayer, but before I say it, I just lie there and let my mind settle down. And I feel a conscious contact when I say the Lord's Prayer. Before I got up to speak tonight, I just stopped for a moment. And instead of saying, God, please be on my side, I said, God, may I be on your side. May I have something to say. And God provides it, providing you are being honest. It takes one to know one. The love and the feeling that I got out of this group when I arrived here today, and I was a little shook when I saw all the people here. But there was a vitality and a, a good feeling, a wanting to be here, a wanting to see other people, wanting to see them sober, not wanting to see them sick. Which leads enormously to say, well, what does an alcoholic look like? You show me what an alcoholic looks like. But 
the feeling that I get from you people will always come back to me. You know, it was a very interesting little sidelight. Uh, a lot of my friends are in show business. And whether they're agnostics or atheists or what, I, I don't question. That's their problem. But one fellow did ask me one day, why do you believe in God? And quick as a flash, the only thing that came into my mind was, because I want to. And I remembered it, and I told my baby, Brother Francis. And he said, you know, if that question had been asked to me, I would have gone into a three-hour treaty. <laughs> he said, I think I'm overeducated for the part. <laughs> but this is what we get through our sharing. I'm not, I, I feel like I'm like a parakeet. My mother has a parakeet. She talks to this little idiot now, and a month from now, he comes out with it. <laughs> so I go to meetings and I listen, and I'm thinking, man, man, oh, I wish I could remember these things. Maybe a month, two, three, five months later, I'll be pitching or talking to somebody. Boing, out it'll come. So I sound like a parakeet. I don't believe I've had any original ideas. The program has rubbed, has rubbed off on me in the manner that I have taken it or received it as it has with you people. Are we sober? Yes. Does that mean that it works? Yes. I had a Jewish friend of mine say uh, from my Army Reserve unit, how long do you have to go to that thing? I said, do you go to the synagogue? Sure. How long have you been going to that thing? Because I get your message. <laughs> One thing it has taught me, I hope, is that there is one God. There's not three or four or five. We're all human beings. I'm not different than anyone in this room, and they're not different from me. We are unique because nobody is exactly like anybody else. But I always thought that I was different and I knew damn well you were. <laughs> that used to bug me. I thought that you were better educated, gave a better background, you had more money or you were going to make more. I had a defeated negative attitude about everything. And if I wanted to dwell on it long enough, living on the West Coast, if somebody did something in the 8th Avenue subway on the third level in New York and I dwelled on it long enough, I could say it's my fault. Guilt. Resentment. Envy. Jealousy. I had them all. I say, I think they started back. When did I go over the line about alcoholism? I don't know. When did I become an alcoholic? A fellow on the coast, he's, a, he's an attorney. He 
He tells this little story about when did he go over the line into alcoholism. There were three cats, female cats sitting on a back fence. If you've heard this, stop me. And one cat says, I am a beautiful Manx cat, and I have beautiful Manx kittens. My husband was a beautiful Manx. And the other cat said, well, I am a beautiful person. My husband was a person. All of our kittens are beautiful persons. The third cat is sitting there licking herself. So this one other cat turns and said, well, what about you? Cat says, I don't really remember. I had my head stuck in an old salmon can at the time. <laughs>
scratched on the back of the truck. Truth Jeff had just been over here, and there was a big spy thing going on, you know. Somehow it had gotten cobbled up that I was the Border Patrol chief bringing in a couple of spies. So I put a citizen's arrest on these two carriages. And away we go across Miami Airport to the tune of Hut 2, Hut 2, and the thing. Get them down into the interrogation room, put them up on a table. I have a nice plug chair. I tell my sir, I read my notes. We got them all sewed up. I reach in and pull out that IHA case, open it. <laughs> the sergeant is sitting there looking at me. Danny saw the eye. Turned to these other fellows. He said, you gentlemen may go. They did go. And three days later, I was served with three subpoenas. Each were a quarter of a million dollars. I heard I'd plumb hurt their feelings. I heard their feelings so bad that one of them quit his job as an insurance salesman in Seattle and moved to Miami to be close to the taxes. I would too. There was seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars involved. My boss fired me. The Border Patrol series was over. National Airlines don't like me. I don't know what happened to the pilot. Because they got him for an error in judgment. The Border Patrol published an unprecedented special order on me. Barred from Washington, I imagine. I love to go for a cabin. Fade out. Go home and the phone don't ring. No friends. Then I began to really drink. And the violence came out. In the meantime, I had collected 56 guns. This is recommended for a practicing alcoholic. Load them all and then try them out so they won't get rusty. Shoot them in the house. I have a den full of bullet holes right now. A normandy friend of mine, quite a well-known actor, who is, who is trying to make the program. He's trying to qualify. He qualified 20 years ago, but he's still trying. Came over to the house one day. Where's the bullet holes? He'd never seen them. I swear. Took him in, saw them all around. He said, you're sick. I said, that's right. He said, why don't you fill them up? I said, then I might forget they're there. He said, you're sick. Because if I fill up those holes, I might forget. I'm a neurotic. I'm, I'm compulsive. I have flights of fancy. I sit there in my den and I type and I see those bullet holes. And they tell a story. I don't like that story. But I grin at them. Because I haven't added any more to them. The silence really closed down in my house. So when I came into AA, the first thought that I had was, what will happen to my friends if I don't drink? Nobody was coming to the house. They don't want to get shot at. Well, what has happened since I've come into the program? When I was a young man, I used to think of my house full of good conversations, nice people, intelligent people. Good conversation. 
It never was like that because I would get them blasted as soon as they got there, as quickly thereafter, and I would already be off and sailing. How can you have conversation like this? Now in my home, there is. I number, the other night I numbered 18 people in that room, all on the program, and I number two Normsy friends who come to my house. When did the change take place? I don't know. It was so gradual. There is no talk of, man, you ought to know what I did last night. Oh, I, oh do I feel bad today. They're sober. They have love in their hearts. They want to help. They want to be good. They believe in God because they want to, and they believe in the Alcoholics Anonymous program because it works. And I don't question it. We have a new psychiatrist that we just picked up about a week before I came here. This poor guy was sitting in that first meeting. His eyes were like a couple of zeros. What happened? What am I doing here? I have counseled people on alcoholism for years. What am I doing here? What a wonderful thing it is to get people like this into the program. And they make it. Because the one stumbling block that I always want to be aware of is I've never seen anyone too dumb to make this program, but I've seen a lot of guys who were too smart. I don't want to try to outthink the program. I can't. And my sponsor wouldn't let me. He's a pretty sharp character. He's a history professor at UCLA. He's being transferred out here to Michigan. His name is Tony. You've probably, some of you, heard of him. He's been 12 years, and his wife has been on the program for 13. They are a man and wife team, and they're both just tremendous. That's where I got my little pin. Some guy the other day said, you know, it, it's a little triangle of recovery, unity, and service. You guys said, are you from Trinity College? I said, yeah, Trinity College. How can you go into the thing and say, I belong to the thing? The thing that saved my life. Spiritual disease. I keep coming back to this. Because through my brother Francis, I met the Presbyterian minister, the head of the Presbyterian effort out on the West Coast, as far as television, movies, and radio goes. They were looking for an idea to put on television, non-sectarian. They hadn't come up with it. I sat down and knocked off a little thing, showed it to him laughingly one day. He says, can you get me some film? I'd never done it before, and I went to work and produced a little film. One minute, that's all. Not an hour, not an hour and a half, not four hours, not a half hour. God meant me to produce a one-minute film. And I didn't know how to do that. After 23 years in show business, I thought I was a genius. 
I knew everything. It's back at the Council of Churches now. Presbyterians, the Council of Churches are holding their big wing-ding down in Des Moines. We understand that it has passed down there, so perhaps I will be working into another branch. I don't know. I see what I wanted to do if I became a producer was to go immediately into breaks of wrath, price and concrete, all these things. So God says, one minute. One minute. This is like learning to live 24 hours a day. Easy to say, but hard to do. 24 hours a day. It wasn't until just a short time ago that I physically, mentally began pulling myself up short and saying, 24 hours a day, just the best you can do today. Because a little thing would pop out and say, yeah, but what about tomorrow? <laughs> I went down to the Suicide Prevention Council one time. I sneaked in, you know, I was pretty mad. I didn't want any AAs to see me going into suicide prevention because they think the program didn't work. <laughs> so I talked to this Dr. Wally. And I told her that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, fine. She said, I've talked to about 500 of you in the last year. Again, I thought I was different. She said, you know, in addition to your alcoholism, you may have mental illness. Instead of saying, oh, no, not this, you know, I said, very possible. Because I have learned I don't know me. I do know that I have a disorganized personality. I do know that the only place that I'm comfortable is with you people. If this were a group of normsies, I would have shut up and sat down a long time ago. Regardless of what subject I was talking on. Because I have learned to try to be honest. And I couldn't be honest for that long with a group of normsies. About firefighting, maybe, or something like this. I don't know. I'm comfortable with the pariahs of civilization, the alcoholic, the recovered alcoholic. And the practicing alcoholic, the psychiatrist can talk to him until he's blue in the face and both of them are down flat on the floor. He can't get through. But I can lie down on the floor with this guy and I can get through to him. I can talk to him. And he will listen because he knows that I've been there and I don't want to go back. I can only do it one day at a time. Try as I will. I cannot force this thing to go any faster. God give me patience, but give it to me right now. It's one of the hardest things for me to overcome. My last 10 days of drinking, see, I never drank in the morning. I never drank during work. I drank on my own time. I ruined everything on my own time. But the last 10 days, I started drinking by 11 o'clock in the morning. And the last day that I drank, which was June 12, 1960, my wife said she had never seen me stagger. But I got out of the car that day, and as I came around the side of the car, I staggered, and she knew that the end had long gone, because she knew that all control was gone. I walked in the house, took off my shirt, 
I kicked off my shoes. I'm cold. I don't remember this. I turned to her and I said, now I'm going to kill you. Anticipating this little thing, she put on her running shoes. <laughs> Literally, figuratively. She went around the table. I pulled the table over, broke a few things on the way. I couldn't move too fast. Out the door she went. So I continued to break up everything in the house. Barefooted, glass all over the place, six inches deep, and I never cut my feet. I don't know why not. So I went to the den. My mother was in a wheelchair, had retired to her room to get out of the line of action. I loaded my 357 Magnum, and I cocked it, and I stuck it in my mouth, and I sat there contemplating which is the point that most alcoholics get to. None of thought came to me. Oh, I can't do this without taking care of the family. <laughs> so I uncocked the gun, and I wrote out my will in the Los Angeles telephone directory. Did you ever see the Los Angeles telephone directory? And I wrote page after page after page over all those numbers. I can't read it today, and again, anybody else. But it was as clear as a bell to me. What was going to be with my guns, what was going to be with the jeep, what was going to be with this and that and the other, taking care of the family, being big about this thing. And I thought, well, there's a friend of mine, a cop across the street, he has a gun, and he knows how to use it, and maybe he'll do the job. <laughs> so I called him. He was on duty, but I told his wife to get hold of him. He called me back in about ten minutes, and I told him what I had in mind, that he was to come. I would be armed. He was to come up my drive, and he was to take me because I was going to be armed, and if he didn't draw, I would. So he told me what he thought of the idea. And said that he wouldn't be off until 6 o'clock, and I said, Dad, that will be much too late. It will have happened by this time. Very dramatic. So I told him I had other friends whom I thought would do. <laughs> Always looking for friends who were going to give me a shot in the head. He knew what I meant. So as I got off the phone, he got back on the horn, and we both called Van Nuys City Hall at the same time. I got hold of the desk sergeant, Scotty, and he got hold of the radio room. But I told Scotty what I had in mind. Scotty told me what he thought. <laughs> so I fired that magnum alongside the telephone. There was a little silence. And finally Scotty said, Mr. Webb, where do you live? <laughs> and I knew that I had won. I told him, he said, we shall be out. Thank you very much. Dad drank like a gentleman. I hung up. I finished my will. I saw that the gun had six loads in it. But I wanted them to shoot me. I was not going to shoot them. But I loaded the gun. Because if and when they shot me, 
I didn't want some reporter or someone pulling a gun out of the holster and saying he was unloaded and you shot a man who had an unloaded gun. I wanted to protect the cop. I thought of everything. I was brilliant. I thought of everything except the fact that God was hitting me with another two-by-four. Like the old story of the mule. I was born and raised down here in Illinois, and I know them. They're cotton-picking mules. But a farmer bought a mule from one farmer. The guy said, this is the greatest puller and the strongest mule you've ever seen. You've probably heard the story. The guy took him over to his farm, hitched him up, and the mule was a great puller and very strong, but he kept running into the fence down at the end of the... And he wouldn't stop. He just kept running into the fence. He wouldn't turn. So the guy goes back to the first fellow, and he says, look... The mule is great, he's strong, he's close, but he won't turn, he won't turn, he keeps running into the fence. The guy says, never mind, I forgot. Goes back to the mule with him, picks up a two-by-four, hauls off and flats his critter between the eyes. Down on his knees, the mule goes. And the guy says, what the hell did you do that for? He said, I forgot to tell you, you have to get his attention first. <laughs> this is what God had to do to me. I'm speaking only for myself. He was hitting me with that two-by-four. Each time he hit me with it, it was a little harder. So finally, my mother called in, and she said, there are some men out in the front yard. I said, thank you very much. I was barefooted, no shirt, fair slack, Sam Brown belt, and a 357 Magnum. And on the way out to meet the men, I combed my hair. I'm glad I know that I'm sick. I stepped outside, and Scotty was there with a great big clamshell holster on. And I observed his how he must think he's pretty fast with his gun because he had a clamshell holster. He said, oh, no. And I said, you go first, because this is the way we draw on the border patrol. <laughs> what Scotty didn't know until later was that I couldn't have found that gun if I'd had 20 hands. I didn't want to. I'd gotten into that alcoholic squirrel cage, a life of ain't none such, down at the bottom of a pit. Nobody cared. Nobody knew. If there was a God... He wasn't paying any attention to me. I had run out of you, and I had run out of myself. This is what psychiatry tries to induce in the practicing alcoholic. Some success. That complete ego reduction in depth. I just wanted to die. I had nothing left. I was thinking of no one but myself. I had brought it on myself, and now I wanted to go away from it. I was completely selfish. I was completely sick. And Scotty kept me talking until three more of the guys came around behind me. They said they were all over the place, up in, up in my walnut tree. And <laughs> 
Because the cop downtown had called and said that idiot is smashed out of his skull. He wants you to shoot him. Don't send any rookies. So twelve old timers showed up, man. There's nothing like going first cabin. So they downed me, put the cuffs on me, tossed me in the back of the police car on my stomach, and the two guys sat there in the back seat with their feet on my back, and I'm lying here saying, fellas, this ain't the way that I meant for it to be. Let's go back and do it again. <laughs> the next morning, they came down and got me out of my, my little cell. A nice cell, as far as cells go, I guess. I didn't have a stitch on. There was a little metal bunk and a thunder mug. The whole place was about four feet wide and eight feet long with a 2,000-watt bulb in the ceiling with three mirrors around. They were all sitting up in the front office looking. Attempted suicide. Alcoholic. With the guy across the cell from me, across the little walk, when I walked up, he hadn't kept his clothes on. I didn't. He looked over at me and he goes, Brother. And this guy was up for hit and run felony. Well, you can think what I had in my mind that I was up for. Two detectives came down and got me. They took me in a room. Gave me a cigarette. Put my clothes on. They said, what's your problem? And I cried for three hours and told them my problem. That's the first time that I had ever come through. This is that ego reduction in depth. I didn't care. I just wanted to get it off of my mind. I wanted to get it off of my soul. God must have breathed a sigh of relief. I don't know. If I seen the toys with the word God or kind of toss it around, God's a friend of mine. Not this old gray-haired gentleman of my childhood who's going to kick the bejesus out of me for doing this and that and the other. And it just bugged me to hear somebody say, and he also marks the sparrow's fall. I said, man, he knows everything I've ever done. And then I was more guilty. But I told these guys exactly what my story was. I imagine it came out in a torrent. They couldn't make heads or tails of it. But I got rid of it. I got two years probation, $150 fine, stay out of bars, sell the guns, and at the end of two years, my probation officer said, this is another one of those remarkable recoveries to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they took it off the record. My industry hasn't forgotten what I did. In fact, it has grown. It has now gotten to the place where I shot my wife on a plane over Florida. <laughs> they won't let me up. That's their problem, not mine. They look at me, and all they can see are guns going off. I was a violent alcoholic. I'm kind of glad that I was. because maybe the other way wouldn't have worked for me. Maybe this was the only thing that ever would have worked, the violence and the hate and the rage that I had against me that I took out on you people. I was dangerously antisocial. 
I should have been killed, I wasn't. AA is a miracle. What is a miracle? A good thing. I believe in God because I want to. I believe in you people because I want to and I see how it works. I know that you don't want me to fall and I don't want you to fall. One of my friends out in California, when he heard that I was going to come back to medicine, he's in Normandy, he said, oh, you're a big wheel in AA. And I said, no, I'm just one of the spokes, Dad. Because whoever we are, whatever we do, I have to keep in mind who I am, where I am, and what I'm doing. Because I'm one drink away from a drunk. If I don't stay close to that conscious contact, to that thing that I call God, I'm going to get in trouble. I don't know what God has in store for me or for you or for anybody. This is why that I must work this program one day at a time, no more. Because I've been dreaming in the future all my life. Now I'm 47 and a half and I have a tendency to look back and that scares me. The horrible 40s and the miserable 50s are coming up. I said, man, don't it ever let up? Yes, no, guess what? <laughs> have to learn to live with it. I was called on to do a part like swinging through the trees and jumping over buildings like I did when I was Captain Midnight. I found out that I have arthritis of the spine. I have to squat to sneeze. <laughs> I called my sponsor. I said, what the hell do I do now? He said, work the program. And you know, he's right. If I do the best I can today, it don't hurt half as bad tomorrow. But I have found that this is very, very true. So, God let me do a one-minute film. Maybe he's letting me get out of this thing, because I can't do, I can't be the muscle man chucklehead that I was on the screen before. So he's showing me a way out, because it was very easy to put that film together. Which is like greedy lightning. And I have found that before I start a venture, I say, God, please stop me if this is wrong. Don't let me get into difficulty. Don't let me cost somebody else money. Don't let me cost me money. And so far, my wife and I have found that he does stop. He puts up a block, and man, ain't no getting around it. This thing was easy. Maybe I have a direction. I don't know. I merely pass this on for what it's worth. Maybe somebody will take a little heart from the fact that it might keep their ears open. And when something is easy, pursue it if you don't know what you're going to do. I tried to sell dresses for a while. A friend of mine who's trying to make the program makes two and a half million dollars a year. Who's going to work for me? I don't know from dresses. Y'all look good in them or out of them. I'm trying to sell dresses. I tried to lift these cotton picking things out of the truck and my back went out again. I can't sell dresses. So little by little, 
If they had told me at the beginning that it would take over three years, because I stopped working three and a half years ago, almost three and a half years ago, if it was taking this long, I would have gone right out of my mind and grabbed that gun again. But living one day at a time in the program with you people, knowing that wherever I go, I can make a call to a central office or pick up the book and find AA and call it. Whether you've ever seen me or not, or whether I've ever seen you, we share something that other people don't have. That's a conscious contact with a power greater than ourselves. We're trying to do the same thing. We laugh. We kid. We're deadly serious. This is a killer. In my opinion, the number one killer. And only by doing these things one day at a time, 24 hours a day, am I able to contain it and to keep this kooky personality of mine under control. I want to thank Al-Anon. God bless Al-Anon. And thank you, Kay, for a wonderful pitch about Al-Anon. My wife was actually went into Al-Anon eight months before I came into the program. She would dearly love to be an alcoholic. I told her that I would help her. I would buy it as fast as she would drink it. And if I tired, I would have friends standing by. But she said, no, I better not try it. I might not be able to make the program. We, we paid the price. I don't have to prove it anymore. But if I get into thinking, thinking, or I turn away from you people, I will get into trouble again. What's that little tidbit that I'd like to knock off with? A friend of mine sent it into the grapevine a couple of months ago. AA may not have opened the gates of heaven and let me in, but it opened the gates of hell and let me out. And I think that is real good. And I try to remember these things. There are so many things to remember in AA. I want to thank all of you very much for having me here. I try to share my experience, strength, and hope. And I get a lot of, lot of experience, strength, and hope from you people. I want to thank all you guys and gals up here on the, the platform for everything that you've done. And I hope that, and you, Ron Senior, for... You know, a very interesting fact that I've noticed all around the country. <laughs> you think you're going to get a dick, huh? I get it. <laughs> that predominantly our meetings are being held more and more in churches. It's a very interesting fact. I'm glad to see it because I'm getting closer to the people that I dislike. My mind closed up on those are the people that had this thing that I wanted, like the Monsignors. I love them for it now. Whatever their race, religion, creed, or color, I love them. I'm trying to practice it. I'm trying to be a human being again. Thank you very much.